Hello and welcome to the Tommy Rock Show. This episode is brought to you by nobody. I don't have any sponsors yet. This is my first episode. My first conversation is with Adam Garoni. I hope you'll enjoy it. Well, today I have the delightful pleasure to chat with Adam Garoni. Adam Garoni is one of the most successful social entrepreneurs of recent times. Adam co-founded and led the Movember Foundations from its humble beginnings in 2003 in Melbourne, Australia, to become a global phenomenon that changed literally and figuratively the face of men's health. From nothing to a global charity, a global movement, a cult brand that has raised over $1 billion, funding 1,200 men's health programs in 21 countries, Adam built Movember into one of the most innovative and impactful social enterprises created this millennium. Using the mustache as a driving symbol of the movement, Movember focuses on the three key areas of prostate cancer, testicular cancer, and mental health and suicide prevention. Life After Movember saw Adam consulting with organizations and entrepreneurs dedicated to using business and culture for good. I'm actually one of those lucky entrepreneurs mentored by Adam. In February 2019, 16 years after starting Movember and two years ago now, Adam accepted the role of CEO of Starloud Children Foundation, where he is leading the organization through a transition to build the brand and grow revenue in order to deliver more happiness to seriously ill children. In this podcast, we will dig into the early days of November, get to know Adam a bit deeper, and share skills and tools that you as a listener can take with you on how to create something meaningful of your work and of your life. Adam, thank you so much for doing what you do. And thank you so much for sharing your story here today. Thank you, Tommy. I understand this is the first episode, so I'm honored to be the first guest. Yes, it's true. I am. This is the first, you're the first guest of the Tommy Rock Show. <laughs> what I'm trying to do here is to talk to people like you who live a meaningful life, artists, founders, musicians, researchers, politicians, athletes, businesswomen. I wanna share their story their perspective so the listeners can learn something, maybe grab some tools to live their own meaningful life. And I'm excited and I'm a little bit nervous. And my, my first question for you then would be, um, Adam, what would your advice be to someone starting something you like me? Um, I think, uh, you know, the entrepreneurial journey is, is a, is a tough one. And, um, you know, to, to start something, it, it requires a deep, deep, deep dedication to whatever that is. And with that um, deep motivation, you'll be able to persist through not making any money um, for the first part through all the myriad of hurdles and, and barriers that you need to navigate to make your enterprise successful. So it, it if you're on the fence about something, an idea or a concept, that's probably a really good indicator that maybe there's something not quite there. But if, if you are all in about a particular idea, um, so much of a successful organization is about grit and determination because there's going to be hundreds and thousands of reasons why you should stop uh, pursuing a particular, um, you know, building an organization or whatever it is um so you have to have that deep motivation and, and that crystal clear vision of 
whatever it is um, and, and what it will become and, and hold on to that vision, um, knowing that how you get there and how you think you'll get there will no doubt uh, change because different things will get thrown at you along the way. So, um, you know, it's that deep passion about whatever it is that you're working on. And that's, that's the starting premise. That's such, such a good start. Um, thank you. And yes, I can see through your story, the determination, the grit, the passion. I want to get into the beginnings um, of Movember. Um, I want to start by saying, I think one of the reasons why I am so inspired and love this, this what you have created on top of the billions of dollars raised for charity and the impact itself is the community you build, the millions of Mo Bros and Mo Sisters. And so before we get into the beginning uh, of how it started and why it started, I'd love for you to share the story of one particular Mobro. Um, if you could tell the story of the taxi driver in Toronto in 2010. Yeah, that, um, that was an amazing story. Um, it was uh, 2012, I believe. And um, it was toward the end of um, November. Um, and that year, uh, that was the year that, you know, November truly went viral in, in the space of, six weeks, the campaign raised, I think it was $145 million. Um, and, you know, the awareness engagement, there was 1.3 million people signed up fundraising uh, across the world. And um, November was everywhere. And in particular, Canada, it was um, on the faces of pretty much every hockey player and fan. And um, yeah, we were sort of celebrating the end of November and um, we uh, were out for dinner and then we're going to another bar and we jumped into a taxi. This is pre-Uber and got in the taxi and um, uh, this, the taxi driver had this amazing um, moustache and I commented on, on his moustache and he says, oh, it's, uh, it's for November. And I said, oh, I'm, I'm growing one for November as well. Mine was nowhere near as impressive as his was, um, but um, he, and I said, oh, well, what, what's your motivation for um, growing a moustache? And I didn't allude to um, me being the CEO at the time or starting the organization with my brother and a couple of mates, because um, I wanted it just to be a genuine and real conversation. And he, he, he literally pulled over the taxi and uh, he said, well, he goes, I, I know, November is for men's health, um, but I'm growing my moustache as a tribute to, to my mother. I recall he was from Sri Lanka and he said that uh, he and his family weren't able to um, fund the treatment for his mother and, and sadly she had recently passed from breast cancer. So he said that, uh, you know, his moustache and him growing as part of November was a tribute to his mom and that he would do that every year to, to remember her. And it was just such a, a beautiful moment to, to hear someone's, um, you know, that this became their outlet and way to remember and honor their mom. Um, and we all shared our reasons for doing it. And I, I didn't tell him that you know, I was the founder of CEO Movember because it just felt a little bit disingenuous at the time. And we just had a really amazing discussion for probably 15 minutes um, in, in the taxi. And 
it was just one of the most touching um, moments uh, in my whole time at Movember just to hear his um, deep passion for Movember and growing it and, and then his motivation. Thank you for sharing that. Before uh, millions of people were growing mustaches around the world, um, there weren't many people growing mustaches. Can we go back to 2003? Um, can you tell me the story of the mustache comeback? How did it get started? Why did it get started? Yeah, for sure. Um, well, the uh, the legend of the story is um, my brother and and his very good friend Luke, and they were having beers on a Sunday afternoon. And, and my brother's birthday is at the end of November, November 27. And they were reflecting on fashion and trends and how the moustache had gone out of favour at the time. And, and this was 2003. Um, but our dads and sport heroes and movie stars back in the day had them. And uh, so they decided to bring back the moustache to have a moustache themed party as part of part of my brother's birthday celebration uh renamed the month november to november and we had two parties one at the start to show that you're clean shaven and we all took polaroid pictures of our clean shaven face and and drew a moustache on them so it was like it was a competition to see who drew a mo grew a mo who who closely matched what they drew on the 1st of November as um, on the, uh, at the end of the month. And <clears throat> so it had really nothing to do with anything other than to see if we could grow moustaches and to celebrate my brother's um, birthday. But it was this amazing journey of changing your appearance and the conversations that were prompted off the back of that as to why you were doing it. Um, and it became this, you know, in my mind, this perfect word of mouth campaign where you could change your appearance over the course of a month, create conversations. Uh, and that was really this, the, the um, motivation in the following year to sit down with Trav and Luke and, and one, of, one other founder and, and say, hey, why don't, why don't we turn this into a campaign whereby we grow moustaches, we raise awareness for a cause and um, raise some money along the way. And that first year in 2003, there were 30 people that did Movember. Um, and then the next year we had 450 people uh, do Movember. And, you know, up to 2012, which was the peak year, we had 1.3 million people, you know, raising $145 million. Um, and I often think about that because in every entrepreneurial journey, um, and we've talked about this, if, if you can't get 30 people engaged and buying into your enterprise and buying your product or service or engaging in a charitable endeavor, you're never going to get to 300 and you're never going to get to 3,000 or 300,000 or 3 million customers, whatever it is. So that first 30 and then the following year was 450. They're oftentimes the hardest customers to get but they often become the most inspired um, and go on and, and create that, that um, virality um, that we had. So, and even at, at Starlight now, we're creating a campaign, which is all about engaging um, the streaming community, um, those that play games and uh, musicians that stream and, and chefs that stream and, and it's working. Um, 
and first we had 10 streamers and then we had 30 streamers and we started a campaign on March 10, which is Mario Day, because one of our partners is Nintendo. And, you know, we've got 400 now streamers that have raised, you know, $110,000 just in a few days. So it just becomes about, you know, finding that first 30 and then accelerating that to the next 300 and then 3,000 and then 30,000. It's momentum builds momentum. It's, um, you know, it's that, that flywheel effect. Yeah, starting small before trying to say, I want to build something for everybody. Uh, is the number 30 a particular number or is, is, your, is just the idea of something small? Uh, I mean, 30 was the number that first did it, did Movember. And it's it's a number I've just held on to. I mean, it could be 20, it could be 50. Uh, but I've, I've found 30 and 300 um, to be sort of key milestones that I look for in, in growing, um, you know, an organization or a campaign. Um, because, yeah, when we, they're the hardest. They're the hardest to get. And then you... Beyond that, it's, you know, you can set different milestones, but 3,300, 3,000 have been sort of key benchmarks. And I guess it's easy to remember. Mm -hmm. And do you think there's a specific time frame for to hone that small, that small before trying to scale, before trying to go big? I know there's also the story of how before going to the United States, you, you started uh, with a smaller country to, 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 mm -hmm to start again with that idea of let's figure it out with a smaller group. Let's really engage these people before trying to engage the world. Yeah. Um, I often think about the beat of an organization. So, and that varies from organization to organization. My is fairly unique in that it had an annual beat in that we had one campaign for one month of the year. And, and obviously there was a lot of work that went into that there was the pre-promotion in October and then a little bit of wrap up in December. So that had an annual beat and, and really we could only ever get a handle truly on the growth of the organization once a year. Um, at Starlight, we're running campaigns every quarter. So every quarter we get a true indication around um, the growth of the organization. And, and in fact, we've got some persistent campaigns uh, that run year round. So we've got metrics on that every every month. So timing for November is a little bit different because it was, you know, we only got to do the campaign once, once a year. But in all my endeavors, um, again, I guess I coming back to the number three, it, it's always seemed to take three to four years for something to to really bed down and and for it to to, to fly. Um, and every entrepreneur, including myself, wants to accelerate that. You want success quicker um, and you do everything you can to, to make that a reality. But again, stuff just takes time. It takes time to build a brand. It takes time to build a community. When you're starting out, you don't get everything right. Well, not even starting out. In established organizations, you don't get stuff that you're doing for the first time right. Ever. And if you're not, you're probably not pushing the boundaries enough um, on that. But I've found, yeah, three, four to five years is, is what it takes for something to bed down. And that I saw that in November when we launched in each country. It took three to four years for it to really kick. You know, we 
opened a small barbershop here in LA and, and that took three years to really build a true customer base of regular customers coming in and then you get the you know the infrequent customers on top of that so and and even at starlight we you know i came in this is an established organization and really reinvented the brand and a digital presence and created a number of campaigns and i'm seeing been there two years now and i'm i'm seeing traction and success in the new stuff we've built but it's still probably another year off before you'll see that true momentum and, and return. I'm curious to hear about um, how that transition worked for you. When, when did you realize um, like that there was some traction, that this was maybe something worth quitting your job and going full into? Because at first it was just, like you say, you were having fun with your buddies and growing a mustache and raising some money for charity. When did, were you like, let me, let me do this really full time. And then, and then why, and how did that all feel to you? I'm curious to really feel that experience. Yeah, it was, um, you know, this was meant to be a passion project for us and something that we could do, um, in our spare time and, and, you know, contribute to humanity in, in some way. Um, so in 2004, which was our first real fundraising year, um, we had 450 people sign up and raised $54,000 and we donated all that to the Prostate Cancer Foundation. The next year, it, it really took a significant step up. I recall we had 10 or 11,000 people signed up as fundraisers and we ended up raising um, $1.2 million dollars. Um, so from $54,000 to 1.2 million. And again, this was all in our spare time and, um, and just cobbled together. Uh, and again, we donated all that money to the Prostate Cancer Foundation. Um, but with that came a lot of awareness and a lot of skepticism around who we were, what we were doing. We weren't a registered charity at that point. We were working through the Prostate Cancer Foundation um, there were like, who's, who's on your board of directors? How much am I getting paid? And I wasn't getting paid anything at the time, but that wasn't the perception. Um, and who are you guys? How, you know, what's going on? And I think with any success like we've had, there's going to be a bunch of people that love what you do. There's going to be a bunch of people that are somewhat jealous about creating this idea. And, and there's going to be some detractors and, so it became this point where it was like, okay, we need to, you know, be far more professional as an organization, create an independent board of directors, have auditors, have lawyers. Um, and with that comes a whole, um, you know, you add overhead to the organization, which ultimately is taken away from the, the donations. Um, but we, so it became this pivotal point where we discuss, you know, okay, this is um, caught us a little by surprise in terms of the growth. Um, we don't have the time to do this in our spare time uh, anymore. So we contemplated shutting down Movember after the 2005 campaign. Um, or if we were going to continue with it, we had to take some of the money that we've raised and invest in, you know, um, making the organization as professional as possible. And obviously we chose the latter. Um, and then I and, my, and one of the other co-founders, Luke, 
<clears throat> quit our corporate jobs and started working for Movember again for no money. Um, and we we did some consulting work on on the side, and we were sort of working seven days a week, eighteen hours a day. And my brother um, Trav was you know through his creative agency doing doing the same. Um, so that became the point at which we knew there was something here and, and the point at which we knew to take the next step in the evolution of November, we needed to, um, you know, figure a way to, to um, fund the organization. And, and luckily we got a couple of corporate sponsors that, that jumped on board and, and gave us enough money to at least fund part of the operation. Yeah, because the, even you were speaking about kind of the doubts and the people that were skeptical, even the, <clears throat> the Prostate Cancer Foundation uh, at, at first that you were raising for uh, wasn't necessarily so excited about <laughs> Movember, right? No, they, they didn't want to partner with us formally uh, in 2004 um, because they just thought the idea was you know, ridiculous and would never work. And, and it is, on it, when you step back from it, it is a ridiculous idea, um, but it worked and we knew it would work. I, we all, and this is what I talk about having that crystal clear vision and not everyone's gonna share your vision, particularly when you're trying to create an enterprise around getting men to grow mustaches. <laughs> um, so, and that, skepticism repeated itself over and over and over again and that's it comes back to that true sort of belief in what you're doing because you're going to get people that think your idea is silly stupid um and totally discount you and write you off um so yeah the the prostate cancer foundation you know didn't want to formally partner with us in that first year um, but the parting comment was, hey, if you happen to raise any money, you know, you can write us a check. Um, and we did. We wrote them a check for $54,000, which is all the money we raised in 2004. Um, that then led to a partnership with them. And the next campaign raised $1.2 million uh, for the organization, which was an organization that was raising, I think, three or four million dollars a year um, with a full time staff. And um, so this was um, this was unbelievable to to that organization is that you mentioned um you knew this was a success you know that crystal clear vision you knew you knew what you were doing and where you were going it was just a matter of time to get there um why do you why do you think it worked so well what do you think uh, was so clear uh, how did you know that yeah i think it's it's a really good point i, I and i always look for close comparisons and um for me changing your appearance over the course of the month was this significant commitment and so there was the commitment aspect which was big and, and in my mind you know running a marathon for charity is a big commitment so you train you run the run the marathon on the on the day and off the back of that commitment you get your friends and family to donate to whatever cause you're supporting there was also a charity that had been around a while called the World's Greatest Shave. There's some Baldrick's here in the US. There's a number of similar charities where the challenge is you shave your, uh, your hair. Um, and typically, you know, it's for in Australia, the Leukemia Lymphoma Society. Here, St. Baldrick's is for childhood 
cancer. So in my mind, the mechanism was the same. You're, you're changing your appearance fundamentally. It's sort of the reverse. And, but that, that were raising, you know, $15 million a year in Australia at the time. So in my mind, okay, that all the elements of running a marathon for charity or shaving your head for charity are the same. We're just going to reconfigure that. And then we're going to create this amazing brand um, that is targeting young men. And, and no one in the charitable sector at the time had target, targeted that segment and create a brand that we wanted to be part of um, and not use fear-based marketing like one in six men will get prostate cancer or whatever. Therefore, you should do this, create this truly aspirational like lifestyle brand. Um, so, and, and again, you know, coming, and, and there's an element of Movember, which is, there's an element of a lightning in a bottle to it. There, there's absolutely that, there's, there's an element of luck um, and you need all that. Um, but then it's about exceptional execution over time. And Movember wouldn't have grown, wouldn't have expanded internationally without exceptional execution and leadership and management, not, not just from me, but from the team. So, you know, with Starlight, I, I looked at it and go, all right, two of our programs provide gaming in virtual reality and, and with our Nintendo Switches to kids in hospital. Okay, I've, I've seen other charities, including Movember, raise money from the gaming community online. Like, and they aren't in gaming. Like, we'll, we can tap into the gaming community like these other charities that are having success. But our authenticity in the space and the thing that differentiates us is we get to place gaming stations and we get to allow kids in hospital face with whatever it is they're going through to game and play. That, that's a beautiful through line. So let's go there. And, and I've worked and, and, you know, it's taken time. So I always look for, you know, who are the close comparisons, who are the competitors, near competitors. And I think whenever anyone says, well, I've got this idea. And I say, well, who are your competitors? And it's like, well, there is none. It's like, to me, that's a bit of a red flag because it either means you don't understand your industry enough or there's no competitors in this space because potentially there's no market for this. There's always competitors. Um, identical competitors, near competitors. And I think looking for those and really understanding their business, how they work, their strengths, um, and then how whatever it is you're creating can be different um, is, is the key part. Because with Movember, the, the fundraising mechanism behind it all, no different to what was happening with other event-based charities. We certainly wrapped an amazing brand around it. We created our own technology that, you know, we were, we were literally, you know, the first charity to take the whole registration process, donations, everything online, um, you know, back in 2004. Um, now it's obviously commonplace, but it was all done by mail uh, at the time. So, yeah, it's, it, you know, I think having a real good understanding of who, who your close competitors are, near competitors, and, and what makes you different is, is really important. I want to bring it back to, to you particularly. Um, you, you came to, um, from Australia to Los Angeles around 20 years ago, and you're living uh, at this time uh, what some would call the American dream. Uh, right, you have this, you create this global phenomenon, 
you 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 raise billions for charity. You're 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 saving thousands of lives. You live in sunny Los Angeles. You have a beautiful house, healthy children, a, a gorgeous Californian wife. You're look you're a good looking fellow. I mean, it's it's this this picture um, that some could could see as uh, I'll call it the American dream for, for because I don't have a better word about, about mm -hmm. it. My question is, um, what is true about pursuing this kind of this image that I just that I just painted, um, and you know what has been, what was exciting to you maybe 20 years ago coming here, and what have you learned after 20 years ago, and and what is keeping you keeping you here after after this time as well? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. Um, yeah, I, I actually came across in 2007 um, to, to launch Movember uh, in, in North America and, and take it global was the, the whole reason I immigrated across, um, which in itself, and you, you've done it, is a significant challenge um, to immigrate from one country to another. It's just a whole bunch of red tape and an extra layer of admin um, that you need to go through. Um, yeah, it's... I. It's not, I've chosen a life of working, a life dedicated to service, you know, in the military for nine years, the Australian military, then for November and now um, for Starlight. So, you know, with that, there's there's no equity. There's, um, you you earn a good salary, but it's, you know, there's there's no organisational, or there's no personal upside from the organisation's success. And, and that's, the reality of the not-for-profit world, and I think the the American dream is, you know, it's it's one of um, capitalism and making as much money for yourself and generational wealth and all that sort of stuff. And um, don't get don't get me wrong, I have a blessed life here, and um, but you know, I, I think a lot about you know what makes you happy and what makes me happy, and um, you know. A life of service and, and serving others um, makes me, you know, very happy. And, and that, you know, that's my kids and um, with Jess, my wife and our family. And then, you know, beyond that to these these causes. And just having our kids grow up, understanding the importance of service and how you can do that in various ways um, as a volunteer, as a fundraiser, as a donor, as a, as a career. Um, that to me is the most important sort of um, attribute I, I want to instill in our kids, that along with humility. Um, but, you know, it is a good lot. I mean, it's been a tough year. It's been a tough year everywhere. Um, but, um, you know, the, and I, I think, you know, for the first time ever last year, we, we thought about potentially going back to Australia. I mean, the US was just in, in my view, complete turmoil. Um, and you ultimately move countries because there's better opportunities in those countries that you're moving to. Ultimately, you know, that could be personal, it could be professional, but you move to a country because you think there's better opportunities there. And, and for the first time since 2007, I, I saw what was happening in Australia versus here. And I was like, okay, the, you know, life is better in Australia than it is here. And you start to think about potentially going back. We, we didn't do that. We're, you know, got two kids and, you know, going to the local school and, you know, love our friends and, and family here. Um, but, you know, the pandemic and everything does cause you to stop 
reflect and think about in part because you've got so much time to do that um what's important and and where do you want to be um like geographically for us as well you mentioned service and you mentioned uh, you know um you think a lot about what makes you happy and, and and service is a big part of your life. Like you said, when you were a kid, you wanted to serve your country, you served in the military, you served men's health through November. Now you're, you're serving children. Um, I'm curious to understand uh, what service means to you and how it relates to happiness. Yeah. Um, you know, I've, I've thought a lot about the difference between success and significance. I think, um, a lot of, a lot of us in our first half of our adult life think, you know, I focused on success and that could be academics at school, college, um, then you get into the workforce and it's success with, you know, the amount of money you get paid titles, um, responsibility, and that materializes, you know, into things that show you're successful and cars, watches, clothes, whatever it is that you're into. And then I think you, when people get to this point at different stages of their life, but you start to think about, okay, that's, that's great, but there has to be more to this because it, it, you know, success brings in my mind fleeting moments of happiness. But when you focus on significance and significance to me is about serving and serving other people less fortunate than you, um, you and when you do that, um, you, you realize how fulfilling that makes you um and that brings like a, a deeper sense of joy and fulfillment and purpose in your life and that could be you know contributing to your local school your street your, your core family when you you're serving other people beyond yourself that um you know personally for me is you know that brings me the greatest sense of fulfillment and as you get on in age i think you know you i think about my legacy and and I want it to be more than just, yeah, he's the dude that, you know, one of the dudes that started November and the mustache guy. Um, I want it to be much more than that. And and that doesn't need to be that broad. I, you know, I want my kids just to know me more because they see all this must, mustache stuff around the house and well, what, what, what is it like? They, they pick up on it. Um, so, you know, that's, yeah, that's what I think about is, you know, being significant and your legacy and, you know, how is it you can nudge this world in, in a slightly better direction, which I think is, you know, much more meaningful than, um, you know, a career that just, you know, brings him way more money, but potentially, I mean, that just transpires into stuff that you, for the most part, don't really need. Thank you for sharing that. Um, for someone who's maybe getting started and, and hearing this and feeling like, yes, I want to find purpose, um, uh, also maybe asking it themselves these questions, where, where can they start? Where would you recommend they start? Uh, what can they do to, what should they pursue? What should they maybe think about? Uh, what should they be curious about? Yeah, our, our, my um, sort of social entrepreneurial journey started differently to almost most it, it, it started with a concept a campaign and way to raise awareness and money and then that led to well what do we focus that on which was men's health um 
that that is a really odd and fairly unique way to start a social entrepreneurial journey, but it's it's not um, completely unusual. Um, so I, I would recommend more generally for people that you know want to focus on a particular cause is to think deeply about what really matters to them and and what is an authentic connection to that particular cause um, and, and why. And, and sometimes, unfortunately, people are directly impacted by a particular issue them, themselves or within their family and they become passionate about that. I think that start with, you know, what, what is it, what societal issue, societal injustice you want to focus on? Understand that deeply. Have make sure you have a, a personal connection with that, even if you have to get involved with that. Um, and then before starting your own enterprise around that, I would look for what organizations are already working in the space and do really good due diligence around that, and then get connected with that organization to maybe volunteer or get involved. Um, get you know and that that will create a deeper connection to the cause and then if you want to start something new around that then then that would be the springboard point that i'd go off but in any sort of particularly charitable organizational social enterprise there's the societal issue um and then a theory of change around how you're going to impact that societal issue um and once you've bedded that down, it's like, all right, how are we going to fund this? Are we going to get people to grow moustaches? Are we going to engage the streaming community um, to game and have fun? Are we going to go after high net worth individuals? There needs to be a fundraising machine there. And then the third part is the, you know, the governance part of the organisation, the finance, legal, independent boards, uh, all that sort of stuff. They're the three elements that need to be right. Um, particularly with starting an enterprise um, with the social purpose at its core. I want to get into back to you <laughs> about, um, so I mentioned in the beginning, some of your achievements and, and you mentioned, you know, how success is, 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 is deeper than that. And, and I've, uh, how I've, as I met you, I realized and get to know the wonderful man that you are and how you are authentic and humble and curious and, and open and deeply compassionate. Um, and I know that this is something that you mentioned as something that's important, particularly to, to, to men's health, I mean, women's health as, as well, to be open, to be vulnerable. Um, so I'd be curious to know what's in between the lines of uh, a bio we can read about you and if you can share some of the difficult moments around uh, on your journey, uh, your doubts, your fears along the way. And um, and then maybe sharing as well why you think it's so important to be vulnerable and um, the importance of that conversation. Yeah, it's, you know, vulnerability is, um, it's, it's hard um, because there is this stoicism, you know, and instead of, you know, societal expectations, particularly around men and, and vulnerability. And, and it's a core part of the conversations that we created with Movember that we were trying to break down and, and have men open up about, you know, what's going really going on in, in their life. Um, and again, any entrepreneur, anyone creating 
an organization or creating a campaign or a new initiative within an organization, you are absolutely going to have doubts. And, um, you know, sharing those doubts is, is tough, um, but really important. I mean, even at Starlight, an established organization, we've created a whole bunch of new initiatives. And, and um, the, the, I was talking with the team the other day and this analogy around, okay, if you plant seeds and they're the right seeds, the soil's good, you water them and they're in sun, they're going to grow. But for a period of time, seemingly nothing on the surface is going to happen. But you don't dig the soil up and dig the seeds up to check if they're, they're growing. You just, you've got to believe in the process and have the patience to, to see that through. But with that comes, um, you know, vulnerability and uncertainty because you can't really see anything happening. And, um, and, you know, with some of the initiatives that we created at, at Starlight, that's exactly what was happening. We created these new fundraising channels and, a lot of work in the background and then I'm managing the board of directors expectations around well how quickly is this going to translate into new revenue it's like you've just got to have patience in the process and trust in the process but when you can't see much happening you've got external pressures and you're in the middle it does you start to question okay is this the right thing should I be digging up the soil to check that the seeds are sprouting of course if you do that you're going to ruin the whole thing um so oftentimes you're managing different expectations and um, yeah, there's been many moments even more recently at Starlight where I've had doubts around, okay, is this right? And then you just go back. It's like, all right, we're doing all, doing everything right as far as I understand it. The, the ingredients, what we're doing is the same stuff we did at Movember and that was a phenomenal success. It will come. But even in, you know, the Movember days, I, you know, we had phenomenal success, but there were times and moments where that absolutely wasn't the case. And we saw really great growth in Australia. Um, and we had a lot of interest from New Zealand. Um, so we la launched the campaign in 2006 in New Zealand. I went across and, and launched there. In the first year, it raised a million dollars. And that's from a population of three and a half million. So it was a phenomenal Phenomenal success year one. In 2007, we decided to launch the campaign in the US and in Canada and the UK and in Spain. And we had all the same levels of interest, but at a totally different scale. I mean, the US population I think is 310 million versus 3.1 million in New Zealand at the time. So you had a hundredfold factor. Um, and so you know, packed up everything, moved across to the US and it was literally couch surfing for the first year, um, trying to be the global CEO and launch the campaign specifically in the US and in Canada. Um, and we set a target. We thought, all right, if, if we raise $1 million the first year in, in New Zealand, surely we could raise $2 million in the US and $2 million in Canada and $2 million in the UK. And so I'd uprooted everything and moved across here. And in its first year, November raised, I think it was 500,000 or $600,000. So well short, well short of our, what we thought were exceptionally conservative targets for the US. It was roughly the same in Canada. 
so it failed. Um, and I was over here by myself and you're going, okay, I've, and the campaign was really successful again in Australia and New Zealand. It's like, okay, I've made a really bad decision here personally and professionally. Um, but then it's like, okay, what you, what you then come to realize is the US is not one country from a market point of view. It's so fragmented. California, you know, the three cities couldn't be different from San Diego to LA to San Francisco. Um, so when you start to understand the US market and the complexities of it, um, you know, you just come back and it's like, oh, this was a stupid expectation to come into this country and expect to do that year one. Um, so it was years actually of complete uncertainty, doubt. But again, coming back to that three to four year rule, it was like year three, um, you, you definitely saw the traction. But in that first year, they were, okay, we've, got a couple of, we had Kelly Slater do it. We had Quicksilver on board as a corporate partner. Okay, there's some elements here that we had at the very first part of November in Australia. I think it's just gonna take longer here. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's it's tough because you, you're leading an organization, you know, um, enthusiasm and, um, you know, as a leader, you, you you know, you want to project this level of confidence that we're going to win, we're going to succeed. Uh, but at the same time, you've got all these personal um, doubts around if it will. Um, so it's a real balance between, you know, projecting confidence as a leader and then, you know, also not hiding your, your vulnerabilities. And I think it's, you know, and I've certainly evolved as a leader over time. And I think, you know, you, you can be vulnerable. You can say, listen, I think as far as I know, this is the right plan. Here is, you know, what we need to look for, for this to be successful. Um, because, you know, the other thing you need to quickly do is recognize where something isn't working um, and not pursue something um, so far and invest in something so much that you know that it, it you know it, it topples over a, a business or you know fails as a startup i think that's that's another really good and tough skill is to go well i don't think this is the right decision the right thing even though you you know when you set out you did so that patience and it seems like by being vulnerable and real you're able to see what are the parts that maybe don't work and then fix them would, mm. would that be something that you would i mean for someone who's you know you're a ceo like you say you have this, this this pressure to 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 motivate to to be positive um what would you say to someone who's who's maybe listening and struggling to be vulnerable and they think that they they should be strong and that they should you know for any reason um what are maybe the benefits of being vulnerable why should people be vulnerable yeah, I, th I think this is the value of mentorship and, you know, having a confidant that, you know, isn't necessarily directly or indirectly involved in the organization is, is so critically important. I, I, we talked about this. I didn't have a mentor as such for many years and I wished that I did because it would be just someone outside the organization going, hey, man, I just need to download on this. So I was like, I, 
thought this was going to be this way and it hasn't transpired. And to have someone or a group of people that you can just go, you know, download and have a completely transparent conversation with is, is really, really healthy, both personally and professionally. Um, and I encourage everyone to, to do that and think about, you know, who is it in your network that you could potentially have as a, a mentor um, and also at a personal level, like who, who is it that you can share, you know, what's going on, the ups, the downs, and, and for that to be a, you know, reciprocal thing. I think that's, I wish I, wish I had, you know, a mentor um, from the get-go. I really do. I, what did you learn um, on top of the different things that you shared today? What else did you learn in this growth uh, as a leader, but also as an individual uh, on, on your journey? Um, you know, the, um, you know, think about a lot about leadership, you know, leadership in the military is, is quite different. It's very structured, um, hierarchical, um, and there's good reason for that really good reason for that um you know now and and you can see management leadership styles i've even noticed a change over the last few years it's it's fundamentally changed and it's a two-way conversation now now it's you know staff we we engage in culture surveys and we get feedback and we're constantly listening and 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 staff have an opportunity to rate managers and and myself and when i grew up in the workforce, there was, you know, it was that there was no two two way conversation um, around that, and I think that's that's healthy. Um, and you know, you take that feedback on, and you know, that, you know you, you're never going to please everyone. And uh, with your product, with your service, with your style of leadership, and I think that's also important to to remember as you navigate all this, you know, feedback uh, around, you know, how you communicate and, and lead the organisation. Um, but, you know, I, I think having, and I've always been, um, you know, tried to be a very, very open person and, and very transparent around uh, decision-making and, and plans and strategies and being as inclusive as possible and how we, we develop those from sort of including all, all, all staff. Um, but at, at the end of the day, leadership is about making decisions and, and it's about creating a vision and then motivating people around that. And when you make decisions, um, particularly the tougher ones, not everyone's going to, you know, agree with that. But it's, you know, I think particularly starting a business, it's, it's all about making a series of right decisions. You're not going to get everyone right, but you need to be making, you know, 98 out of 100 right decisions along the way. And that could be with who, who's your uh, equity partners, who's um, your first employees, what product features are we going to build and focus on, what, who are we going to target this to, how are we going to price it, all, all those, it's a series of decisions you make as an entrepreneur and uh, you know leadership entrepreneur is really interchangeable in my view um i think you you really need to be a good leader to be a successful entrepreneur um because ultimately it's about creating a vision of, of this business and then getting people and resources around you to to believe and share in that mission and and drive it forward um 
but uh, yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure whether I answered your, your question properly. No, there. Did. Yeah, it's, it's great. Um, where, how do you make the right decision? Uh, a lot of listening. Um, and, you know, it's like, I love that saying, you know, you got two ears and one mouth for a reason. <laughs> you do double the listening and half the talking. Um, but yeah, it's a lot of listening. It's, it's where you can looking at data and looking at insights. And, and, you know, that's been the other fundamental change over the last, you know, really decade. But, um, you know, when you're starting something, you don't have a lot of data and insights because you don't have a lot of customers. So where you can base your decisions on, on the data and insights, and you can make data look however you want, like you really can, but it's being as objective in that analysis possible. It's including, um, people in that analysis. Um, it's, you know, for me, it's, it's a big part of it is, is surrounding yourself with the right people. And I often think about healthy tensions within an organization, healthy tensions, I think are good because, you know, there should be a healthy tension between the sales crew and, and what they're out there selling versus what the engineering team and the functionality of the product is doing today because a, a salespeople will always sell beyond what we've got today, but that, that can drive innovation and product development. But also there needs to be a tension back to go, hey, that's not feasible. And so that's a healthy tension. There's often a healthy tension between the creative folk and, and what they want to do creatively with, from a marketing point of view on, and what core messages we actually, actually need to get across and the call to action. So I think having those healthy tensions um, and having the right people around you listening to them, looking at the data. Um, but in the very early days, and 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 sometimes you you just need to go with your gut feel. Because sometimes there's a void of data. I didn't know whether streaming for Starlight was going to work. We had no data. We'd never tried it before. There are other organizations that were doing it and successful. All right. I think we can do this. And then, then it becomes a gut feel and a decision that we're going to do it. So I think, you know, decision-making is a key part of leadership. Um, and as I said, yeah, getting, not going to get every decision right. I think the worst decision you can make as a leader is, is, is not making a decision and flip-flopping too often on a decision. Um, you've got to be decisive. You, you, you also need to be adaptable. Um, uh, as, as things transpire, because it's like you, you will try something, you'll learn, you need to be able to pivot, uh, but yeah. I have two more questions. Okay. <laughs> what do you do today that brings meaning to you and why do you do it? Sorry, could you ask that again? What do you do today that brings meaning to you and why do you do it? Um, yeah, um, I mean, every day, um, you know, I'm up with the kids, I make them breakfast, I spend time with them before they go off to school. Um, you know, it's the young kids. So one of the most challenging part of my day is getting their socks on and, and shoes on and, and, you know, at the door, you know, of course that's with the support of Jess, but, um, you know, it, it's just a really nice level set uh, around 
you know, getting, you know, spending some time with them in the morning and, and just, you know, remembering that, you know, a lot of what, what I do personally is, you know, for them and, and to make sure that they have the best and, and brightest opportunities, you know, they can. Um, so I think just that time in the morning with them and I try to get up before them. So that means getting up about 5.30am, just have a bit of time for myself, have coffee, just have a, you know, I walk around in, in our garden, just being outside and, um, no matter how cold it is, just being outside for a little bit as well is, is you know, just grounding with the earth and um, starting the day out a little bit slow before they get up and, and, you know, then you get into work. My last question, what are your dreams for tomorrow? What are you excited about? What are you afraid of? Yeah. Uh, you know, I... Um, I am really looking forward to the to the end of the pandemic, the end of um, you know the the isolation, um, and for life to return to some sort of normality. Um, you know that's been tough. You know my my parents live in Australia. My dad has been critically ill, um, not because of COVID through this time. So not not being able to travel to Australia is just a, a surreal bizarre thought um so i look forward to you know being able to see you know my mum and dad particularly my dad again you know there's i think about whether i there were, were periods of time where i thought I'd, I'd never get to see him again because of his health and because i couldn't go there um so i look forward to the other side of that i think there's a lot of good that will come from this pandemic and lockdown um and um what was it what am i scared of Is that excited afraid um um take whatever it feels right yeah um no i think i i am really excited to be able to travel back to australia to see see my parents for for the kids to see them again um you know, I'm, I'm scared about having to battle LA traffic again to get in and out of an office. And I think, you know, that that's one thing that'll, I think, fundamentally change, certainly at Starlight. You know, we've, we've, we've been tracking productivity. Productivity hasn't dropped. In fact, it's increased in some ways. Um, I think creativity has been hit, but I think we can, we can have creativity with, you know, moments together, like half days or full day sessions versus sitting next to each other in on desks in the same room. I think, I think it's been the perfect experiment around how certain workforces can be more productive um, and, and have infinitely more flexibility um, by being able to work from home, spend more time with the kids, um, mashed in with some face-to-face -face time. So... Um, yeah, I'm not looking forward to battling LA traffic, that's for sure. <laughs> Thank you. That's, 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 that's perfect. Um, before we, we hang up, uh, are, is there any last word, something that you, that you want to share? Um, oh, I think, you know, for everyone to think about what is significant to them and the difference between significance and success um 
And I think, you know, for all of us, and I'm, I'm sure because of who you are and, and the people in your sphere, the people listening to this will be, um, you know, very much about how, how can we make this world a little bit better? And that could be in your house, your street, your community, uh, at whatever level. So I think that is the most important thing. It's like, how can we all, you know, make this world a happier, healthier, safer place? Amen to that. Thank you, Adam. Thank you for, for being here. Thank you for being vulnerable. Thank you for sharing your story. I really yeah. appreciate you. Thank you. Thank you, Tommy. I really enjoyed the chat. Okay, before you go, um, as I was wrapping things up and listening to the interview, there was this question that popped in my head, a burning question that I didn't ask Adam, and I really wanted to hear his answer, and I think you might want to hear it too. So I emailed Adam, and he jumped back on uh, the podcast uh, for this final question. You mentioned that you don't own equity in Movember, and therefore, by not owning equity in Movember, you don't own Movember and you can't sell Movember. And so you made this really successful thing that you can't really profit from. A similar entrepreneur creating a for-profit with a similar success as you would make a lot of money through this uh, endeavor and this journey. And I also, you even have to justify uh, your own salary as the CEO of the foundation because this is public information and people like to talk about overheads of foundations and nonprofits. Mm -hmm. um, and so I'm curious to know how does that feel? How, if you think it should be different, anything, and if you would start Movember today, if you would do anything differently? Yeah, sure. I think, you know, by definition, a, a not-for-profit is, um, it's not about the owners of the organization. So when we started and uh, I was CEO of Movember, we ran it like a for-profit entrepreneurial startup. The difference was the profits that we made didn't go to the owners of the organization. They went to the charitable purpose, which was men's health. So the more profitable you were, the more money we were able to invest in, in programs and um, have an impact on the issue at hand, which for Movember was um, men's health. So that's the fundamental difference in a for-profit company um, the profits come in and at the end of a financial year or whatever the time frame is, the owners of the organization can decide to pay dividends to the owners of the organization. So that's the, the fundamental difference. And, and for people contemplating, you know, starting a not-for-profit, that's, that's a key understanding. And when you're at that um, moment where you're deciding, well, should I set this organization up as a not-for-profit or for-profit? Um, I always advise people, it's like, well, what do you expect to be the primary source of your income? If that is donations from the public, then you need to set it up as a not-for-profit organization because it becomes a public entity and you're dealing with donations. And a donation is just that. You are gifting money or products to an organization and you get nothing in return. It's a donation and that's why it's tax deductible. Um, so there's no benefit to you other than the, you know, the feel good factor around, um, you know, supporting a charitable organization. In a for-profit organization, if, if you decide to go down that path, 
your primary source of income then is by selling a product or a service. So I would buy something and in return for that purchase, I, I get a good or a service that, that I want um, and that becomes transactional. So when I'm talking with entrepreneurs that are contemplating starting a social enterprise, that's one of the first questions we get into. What's the primary source of income? And therefore, what is the best structure for this organisation? Um, and then individually, you know, and from a personal point of view, the when you work in a not-for-profit, that that's the decision that you make, that you, in a not-for-profit, can make a salary, um, you know, we, those that do work in the profit industry, we still have, you know, a normal life to, to live and to sustain. So, um, you know, as we talked about at November in the first years, we volunteered our time, but it got to a point where that just wasn't sustainable. We, we couldn't run the organization professionally and at the level that it could be run at by doing it after hours and on the weekends. It just wasn't feasible. So then you go, well, how do we, how do we fund ourselves to be able to work in the organisation? And salaries, rightly, in the not-for-profit segment, are benchmarked, and you know it's really dependent on the amount of money that an organisation raises. The in the US, certainly, those salaries are, are publicly available, and that just comes with you know the territory and the decision you make to work in the not-for-profit industry. If you don't want that level of transparency um, and limitation on potential earnings, then don't work in the not-for-profit industry. Go for-profit um, where you could still do good. Um, and there's many examples of you know, social enterprises um, that also you know, enrich the, the founders of and the shareholders of the organisation. And that can be a very, very sustainable model um, so it really depends on your personal and um, preferences and then the, the the makeup of the organization mm. yeah and it seems like it's all about um yeah i mean that makes sense it seems like it's all about the knowledge of the public i think I, it feels like there's some unfairness or to to you know you're the ceo of this for-profit that's not necessarily doing anything good for the world and you're making a salary, but you also own equity in the company. So you could potentially, you know, do an IPO, sell it, whatever, make a lot of money. And then you're in this other sector where you're dedicating your life to helping and to saving lives and to doing something that's truly impactful, creating value in the world. Um, and people are not only saying, well, you can't profit by owning this concept that you invented, um, but also are kind of checking your salary and being like, are you sure, you know, are you paying yourself too much and asking all these questions? Mm. It feels like for me, it would create some kind of little, if it does create some frustrations or some, some injustice in a way. Yeah. I mean, the, the level of scrutiny that is applied to charities is, um, is a lot. And, you know, again, it's just, you know, it's completely understandable um, that, you know, that people are donating to that organisation, um, it's public money, and they want to see where it goes. But you, you know, there's huge inequities all over the place where you go, you know, a CEO of a for-profit charity trying to change the world, 
um, you know, he's, he's getting criticism for, you know, a couple hundred thousand dollars salary versus, you know, a, you know, a $60 million one-year contract for a baseball player. And, you know, which is funded by the fans and the viewers and all that sort of stuff. But, yeah, I mean, it's, it's just the choice that you make. Um, and they're the industry rules um, that, that apply to, to the segment. And if you don't want, as I said, if you, if you don't want that level of transparency and also scrutiny, um, then it's potentially not the, you know, the industry for you. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And if you would do it again, you would do it the same way? Yeah, I'd do it the same way. There was certainly, as we built Movember, um, there are a number of things that we developed from a technology point of view that I still recall going, wow, we should white label this white label this and spin it off as a separate company. You know, we built a fundraising platform. You know, the first really sophisticated multi-currency, multi-language, um, peer-to-peer fundraising platform. And, you know, we could have spun that off. We, we were running events at the time, so we built a ticketing system because at the time there were these big conglomerate ticketing companies but nothing for small medium size and there was another moment where it was like well we could spin off a ticketing platform for small medium sized events to compete with um ticket, ticket tech and, and stuff like that and we didn't do it um so you know potentially you could spin off some of that tech it could also benefit the foundation as well um but you know the singular focus that we had on building movember was key fundamental to to its success i think you know financially it might have been very lucrative to spin off those for-profit um entities with those products but you know I, that would dilute your focus and, and maybe november wouldn't have ended up where it did so hindsight's easy <laughs> yeah yeah it's all about the focus i can no i feel it i understand it it makes sense and i think that if you would have gone another route it would have been a different journey and we would would have been a different impact too so mm. makes sense um i'd love to continue talking about um the role of nonprofit in the world and if you would see that how it will evolve with time um <laughs> but i don't know i mean I've, i i said it was one more question and <laughs> i have three <laughs> but uh yeah i don't know if you want to jump on that one uh, the kind of how you see nonprofits developing and, and do you see them still existing in the future and the need for them compared to social enterprises? Um, kind of, I, I feel like there's a place for all, for-profit, social enterprise, nonprofits, and I'm wondering if you feel the same. Yeah, I, I, I do. Um, I think certainly since starting my in 2003, four, um, to now that the level of um, accountability that, sorry. No the level of the level of accountability that's expected of charities is is increased you know dramatically i see that trend continuing um and you see it in even you know digital currencies and, and the ability through blockchain to to see every every piece of a transaction from the you know time you make a donation to where that actually money goes and how it's split up over over time so I think in time you're going to see even more demands around accountability for where money goes. 
that shouldn't just apply to charities though. I think government, you know, government is, you know, a, a non-profit entity um, and, you know, we all pay tax, um, a large amount of tax, and yet we don't know where that money goes. So the level of scrutiny that's applied to charities should be applied to government as well so that we understand where our, you know, X cents, whatever it is in California, it's a lot, um, where that actually goes and what impact that is that is having. Um, but yeah, I, I see charities having a, a key role um, as, as we move forward and in, in various different areas from research to, you know, providing on the ground support in, in disaster recovery to stuff like Starlight does in, in helping sick kids. So I think it's, you know, it's a network of government, not-for-profits and then for-profits all working together. Yeah, it seems like there are some things that are needed and useful uh, that just don't have a, a, a sustainable business model and where you have to rely on donations to exist. Right, yeah, and that, and that becomes, you know, the charities exist through the power of story, storytelling and you focus on the societal issue that you're trying to address and how you're going about changing that. You tell that story, you build trust, you build a community and then they, they fund you. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, it's no different really to a startup. Like you build this vision of an organization that you're going to build. The difference there is people invest expecting a financial return at some point. Whereas with the charity, people donate expecting a, a societal impact on whatever it is that you're doing and, and people um do either or both um you know depending on, on the motivation yeah yeah the social return on investment is yeah okay i'll leave you alone now <laughs> that's so much that's it that's perfect all right that's it thank you so much for listening to this wonderful conversation with adam if you want to read more about adam's work you can go to adamgaroni.com. That's A-D-A-M-G-A-R-O-N-E.com. And if you want to read more about my work and follow the next episodes of The Tommy Rock Show, you can go to tommyrock.com. That's Tommy, T-O-M-M-Y, rock, R-O-C-H, dot com. And there you'll see the intro first episode where I'm interviewed by 100 students and I share my own story and why I'm embarking on this podcast journey. You'll also be able to give feedback on this first episode. This is the very first one. I'm curious to hear what you think. I have a lot to learn. And that's it for today. Thank you so much for your time, for staying up until the last second. And I guess I'll see you on the next one.